so good to be with you today, worshiping Jesus. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team and very, very excited about uh, what God has for us today. Uh, maybe you talked to somebody on the way out after the last service, but there is, uh, God's doing something really, really powerful. So I want you to get your expectation lenses on today. Uh, we are wrapping up a series today called Tell Me a Story. And we have seen how God has used all of the parts of this series and, and how the challenge has been to recognize that each of us has a story and we've got this opportunity to link our story to the big story that God is telling. Uh, and, and we have that in scripture. We have that in terms of who Jesus is, but how also his Holy Spirit works in our lives each and every day. And so, so we're excited about wrapping it up today. And I want to introduce to you uh, a friend of mine named Pastor Jonathan. Pastor Jonathan is going to come, and he's going to share a little bit about his story with us, and, and it'll kind of spur our thinking, and it'll, it'll help kind of drive the conversation a little bit further. But what I want to do is I want to introduce him to you right now. Uh, Pastor Jonathan, Jonathan Rainey, is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Seattle Director. He ministers at University of Washington and Seattle Pacific University, where he serves the spiritual needs of the athletic teams, and he's responsible for establishing FCA on university campuses all around this region. He's also the full-time chaplain of the SCA baseball leagues in the Seattle area. He was born, he's not a Northwest guy originally, he was born in Tupelo, Mississippi. He attended Morehouse College where he majored, double majored in pre-med and accounting, and he minored in French. And I, I just want to say, I'm super impressed with that. I mean, that's, that's powerful. He also played football for Morehouse, where he was a three-year starter and the defensive back of the year his junior season. It was during that time that his passion for God uh, really began to stir and his passion for serving people grew. And it's from this passion that God has launched him into full-time ministry. God has also given him a beautiful bride, Cynthia, and uh, they've got just a gorgeous little six-month-old son, Josiah. So we are excited to have him share his story with us today. Would you please welcome Jonathan as he comes to share? I don't remember. Good morning, Overlake. Good morning, Overlake. There's more of us in this service. Uh, let me pray for us before I get started. God in heaven, we are so grateful for life. We are so grateful for your son. Father, you have saved us, you redeemed us, you filled us with your spirit, God, you've given us a ministry. And Father, you're gonna give us a home and you're gonna, you call us your bride. Oh, Father, what a privilege. We don't deserve it, we hadn't earned it. It is all a free and precious gift. So Father, thank you so much for that. Father, I pray that Father, you would um, move in this place today, God, that Father, you move on our hearts, Lord. That, Father, you would allow us to see uh, this topic of racism, Lord. We would see it as heaven sees it, Lord. That, Father, we would have a top-down view of this topic, Lord. We want to see through your lens, Lord. So, Father, we ask that you give us the mind and the eyes of Christ. That, Father, we may be like Jesus. The only way we can conquer any sin is to be like Christ. So, Father, I'm humbled that you use me in my experiences that you've given me to share with your people. So, Father, move in a mighty way. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
As Pastor Mike uh, stated, I am not from the Northwest. I'm a Southern boy, is how we talk in Mississippi. We talk like this down South, very, very slow and everything, but God still loves us nonetheless. No, I really don't talk like that, but I'm so grateful to be here and to share uh, how racism has affected uh, not only my life, but my generation and my genealogy. And before I get into my story, I want to give a special thanks to Dan Hamer, who is one of my heroes. Uh, I don't know if Pastor Dan is in the house, but uh, I love Dan and he's awesome. Uh, It's amazing. Every time I meet with Dan, I am so uh, amazed at uh, just his heart for serving. And he's You've been such a model to me, bro, and I thank you so much for linking me and Pastor Mike up. God bless you. Um, but we're going to talk about this subject of racism. I have 20 minutes, so for, for a, a Baptist preacher that's from the South, that's like a prayer time. So uh, <laughs> pray with me. Please pray with me. Um, my story starts with my history, and my history starts with my great-grandparents. And that first slide, could you go to that first slide? My great-grandparents, this is my great-grandmother and great-grandfather, Harry, Henry and Hattie Rainey. My granddad is a white guy. Imagine this, marrying a black woman in 1880. It's kind of, it's living on the edge, for real. <laughs> he, he's a white man, and my, 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 my great-grandmother was black, and they had my grandfather, who is Doc Rainey, could you go to the next slide? Uh, uh, Doc Rainey, and this is my grandfather and my grandmother. My grandmother was the sweetest lady that ever walked the face of the earth. I'm convinced of that. I think she was an angel wrapped up in brown skin. And my grandfather was a, a mixed kid who was born in 1909 in Mississippi. Imagine his life. He would always talk about how he walked a lonely road because he wasn't black enough for the black kids and he wasn't white enough for the white kids. So he walked a lonely, lonely, lonely path. But uh, one of my heroes, because he poured into me spiritually and biblically what it meant to be a man of God. Love him to death. The times I sat on his knee, he shared Jesus with me. Loving him to death. He was a pastor, and he actually was sponsored by Southern, Mission, Southern Baptist missionaries, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, to actually go to seminary. Because in Mississippi at that time, and it's kind of like that today, a lot of people can't read. It's just truth. And it's amazing, in that day, particularly with African Americans who were uneducated, kept out of the educational system, they would... Uh, sponsor both he and go to the next slide. My grandfather, who was Solomon Young, they were best friends at seminary. And their goal was to go to seminary and to become pastors and actually share the gospel with African Americans. Now, my grandfather, Doc, had a, had a crazy idea. He says, man, reading the word, aren't we, we're not just supposed to go share with black people, we're supposed to go share with all people. That's kind of a fanatical idea, isn't it? Pretty amazing that he, in 1941, to start a multicultural church in the state of Mississippi. Tell you something, that didn't work out really well for him. (laughs) Didn't work out well at all. Didn't work out well at all. He and my grandfather were best friends. They actually married each other to their spouses, and uh, they actually began to to, to do ministry together, and they actually hooked up my mom and my dad. When you go to the next slide, I'll show you my grandmother, who is my grandmother, grandfather Solomon's wife. My grandmother is half Native American and half black. So my mom always tells me, she says, son, you a mutt. <laughs> you got black, white, Indian, everything. You got a little bit of everything in you. And now my wife is Filipina, so my son has it all. 
We got an Asian, black, white, Native American. You know, next thing I know, he gonna marry somebody from Brazil. We have a little Latino in that thing, so we'll get it all straight. So, have a multicultural family. But it's pretty amazing how they hooked my parents up. And I remember the stories that my grandfather would tell me about how growing up in Mississippi in the South, about how the Jim Crow laws would antagonize, you can legally antagonize African Americans through the law, how they didn't have equal rights. When you go to the next slide, you can see some pictures of Jim Crow. We have a man being hung there by a group of white individuals. That happened uh, all the time, all the time. My, my, my grandfather used to say this, they, they say that the white man down there would say a little joke. They say, son, you don't want to become fruit. And he's like, what's that mean? He said, you'll be hanging from a tree. That's one of the jokes they would cut. They wouldn't just call it fruit. They call it in fruit. You guys get the drift. One more slide. We've had family members in our family who have been attacked by dogs. And one more slide. Who've been hosed because of their, they, they've been denied their right to vote and just being black in Mississippi just growing up African-American in Mississippi. It's pretty amazing going through Jim Crow. My dad would tell me stories about how as a child, he worked when he was 13 years old, he had a job. He, he, he worked and he saved and he saved and he saved and he saved. And from 13 to 17, he saved to buy a car. It was a big thing to be a black man and have a car at that time. And he saved to buy a car. And he actually bought this car when he was 17. And he was dating my mom at the time. And my mom and my dad went down to the creek to go fishing. That's what country folks do. We go to the creek, go fishing. And they went down the creek to go fishing, and Mississippi is a, a, a state of communities. Uh, the, the population of Mississippi is actually smaller than the population of Seattle right now, and the whole, of the whole state. And so my mom and dad were down there fishing. They were having a good time. They were dating, and a couple of gentlemen drove up, and they said, boy, move your car out the way. Probably said more like, boy, move your car out the way, boy. Probably said more like that. And, and, and my mom and my dad didn't get up there fast enough, so they put my dad's car in neutral and pushed it into the creek. Pushed the thing into the creek. Before that even happened, my grandmother, who was the help to uh, the mayor of Tupelo, she, by God's providence, not coincidence, but, but, but by God's providence, she, became, she was the help to the mayor of Tupelo's household, and she would go and she would clean and clean and cook and clean and, and, and basically share the gospel with their kids and help raise their kids, and, and they loved my grandmother. My grandmother's name was Melissa, and they loved Miss Melissa. They always come and talk about Miss Melissa. She shared with us. She, she, she taught us. She disciplined us in that whole deal. You guys probably have seen the movie The Help. That was my grandmother. One day, my grandmother's coming home from work, and she's approached by a white man who made an advance at her, and he's very pushy with it. And my grandmother rejects him, and he makes more advances. So much so, he comes on her, our property there, and my grandmother shot at him, shot a gun at him, pow, pow. Somebody, got to get, somebody gave him something back there. <laughs> I hear you, girl. I hear you. And it's amazing how, at that time, she became the only black woman to ever shoot at a white man in Mississippi and not die in the history of our state. Because the mayor of Tupelo said, you're not going to hurt Miss Melissa. We're going to have a mulligan on this one. You're not going to hurt the woman who, who my children love, who, pour in, who pours into them, who has shared the gospel with them, who serves them, who cleans for them, who cooks for them. You're not going to hurt them. You're not going to hurt her. You're not going to bring harm to her. 
These stories were rampant in our, my family's lineage. Racism affected my family in three ways I want to share to you today. It affected me from a social standpoint, from an economical standpoint, and from a spiritual standpoint. Socially, it created a psyche of you can't trust a certain race of people, that you're going to be antagonized, that you're second-class citizens, that even though you pay taxes, you don't have the same right to vote and to do certain things. And it was rough. These are the rated PG story, uh, version stories of our family. I can tell you horrible, horrible stories of things that happened. Uh, when my, aunt, when my dad's uh, car got pushed into the creek, uh, the guys came back to get revenge, even more revenge, and uh, my aunt stepped in front of them and was really saying some obscene words, says, you can't do that, that's not right, so on and so forth, and they pull out a gun and put it to her face. And my mom steps in front of my aunt, and she tells the man, she says, you're not going to kill her, you're going to have to kill me before you kill her. And my mom begins to share the gospel with these men. She said, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to love? Aren't you supposed to uh, uh, be kind and compassionate? And then God takes the gun and he puts it down. And they walk off. Socially, it put this mindset where you're second class, you're not good enough, you can, that, that, that they can never be trusted, and so on and so forth. And it's amazing, when that guy pushed my dad's car into the creek, my dad wanted to basically to go off. He's like, I'm tired of this. I've been here too long. It's too much. Uh, the whole Emmett Till thing had happened, and, and civil rights was going on. I mean, the Selma thing had happened. And it was kind of one of those breaking points, but my granddad... And his great wisdom and his great spiritual maturity. He says, son, do not allow the culture to change your character. He says, do not allow the circumstances to dictate who you are. I didn't share this to the, to the first service, but this is one of the things I remember granddaddy always saying. He said this, and it, was, it, it, is, it has carried me to this day. Not perfectly, but it has carried me in a direction. He says, he, says, he told my dad this, he says, Salvation is free, but the gospel is costly. He says, a gospel that doesn't cost you anything isn't the gospel of Christ. He says, so you're going to have to just take this one and chalk it up, up under the law of love. And my dad chalked it up under the law of love. And he said one of the greatest decisions he's ever made was to be angry and not sin, but to be filled with the Spirit of God. Affected our family socially. Not only that, it affected us economically. If you can go to the first, this first slide, this next slide, this is what a segregated school in Mississippi would look like. Piles of kids up on each other. In schools in Mississippi, Mississippi now is the, uh, uh, one of the has the lowest uh, uh, um, um, uh, education rate of the country, and this this happens because, well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, because of our history, because of our history, kids there were not educated. The education for African Americans in that, in, in that state was subpar at best. Uh, Twelfth grade education in Mississippi for African American was equivalent to a sixth or seventh grade education for the white counterparts. Get this, people ask, well, why is Mississippi people so dumb? They're not necessarily they're dumb. I think some really brilliant people. Oprah's come from there. A lot of brilliant people have come from the state of Mississippi. But get this, Overwhelming, the majority of the state of population, population of the state of Mississippi 
It's African-American. Did you guys know that? It's the only state in the country where African-Americans are the majority in the state. Pretty amazing. And you have this history, this lineage, this legacy of uneducated people. My dad went to, he graduated high school, and I remember him re, watching him read his Bible, and he struggled with reading. He's just, he's just, I'm like, Dad, you're struggling reading. He says, this is how we were taught growing up. And in Mississippi, you could only go to four, five schools in the state of Mississippi. Next slide, please. Only you're going to go to five schools in the state of Mississippi, and they were considered HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Let me, let me take it back to you. This is James Meredith, who was the first black man to attend Ole Miss. And I don't know if you guys know about Ole Miss, but I used to work at Ole Miss with FCA. I used to be the football chaplain there from 06 to 09. Uh, you, probably, you guys probably know Ole Miss more uh, 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 intently from uh, um, um, the Michael Orr story. Anybody ever seen The Blind Side? You like that movie? Michael Orr was one of my kids that I was able to mentor while I was there, and I was able to work with uh, he and got to meet Leanne and Sean Tui and those guys, and Leanne, Leanne is just the country's little southern belle you ever meet. Jonathan, you get Michael to come to Bible study and you learn about Jesus and learn how to walk with the Lord, and I know he's a big man. He's going to, going to the NFL, but the NFL ain't going to last forever. He needs to learn about Jesus, and, and she's just that old southern belle, and, and it's pretty amazing. But my time at Ole Miss was a great time uh, because— uh, I was able to minister, but it was also a, a tough time for me because when I went there, the guy before me, who I did the very exact same job as, we did the same job, same job description. When I was there, he made $35,000 more than I did. Same job. Racism affected me economically. Now, I want to make this clear. This is not an Ole Miss issue. Ole Miss didn't hire me. I know people think, Ole Miss, they're racist. Da, da, da. Actually, Ole Miss is one of my favorite schools in the country. Awesome school, awesome people. One thing I got to put a plug in there for Ole Miss, it's the number two most diverse city school in the country. You know, the population of Ole Miss, African-American population, is 21%. The number one most populated school in the country with African-Americans is Mississippi State. They have 22%. Talked to the, uh, the, 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 um, the chancellor there, Dr. Rob, Robert Kayak, before he retired. He says, Jonathan, I want to make Ole Miss 30 to 35% black before I leave here, which is pretty amazing. I think if you go to most schools in the Pac-12, I think they probably at best are 2 to 3% black. So I want to make that plug for Ole Miss. Ole Miss in itself as an institution, I don't think it's racist anymore. But the system that's there and the mentality, the biases is there were racist. I got... I got $35,000 less because, I believe, because I was African-American. Going back to the next slide, my dad was educated at a historically black college and universities. Those schools in Mississippi were vastly inferior to the white counterpart schools. There were only five schools in the state of Mississippi that he could actually attend. Jackson State, Alcorn State, Mississippi Valley State, Tougaloo College, and Russ College. They were the only schools that he as an African-American he, he could attend. And because of his lack of education and lack of opportunity, you know this, the only way you can move up in America from, through upward mobility is opportunity and skill. Education is your skill and opportunity has to be there. Next slide, please. And the way you move up through, through that is through opportunity and skill. And this was a study that was done between 1990 and 2010, over a 20-year uh, time period, of the result of the economic impact of lack of opportunity and skill. Whites have $110,000 average savings in their bank account because they have opportunity and skill. Asians, they found, have are number two, but the thing about Asian population that comes here, the, the Asian population that comes to America usually are very educated. 
The African-American population that was here was very uneducated, and the Hispanic population that uh, typically comes here is very uneducated. So you have white-collar and you have blue-collar jobs, but you have lack of op opportunity in education. Racism has affected me that way. But more, more than that, more than the social, more than the economic, the most important way and the way that hurts me the most is, lastly, racism has affected me spiritually. Next slide, please. Segregated churches. The most segregated time in, in America is on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. My best friend growing up was a guy named Larry Comstock, and Larry Comstock was an uh, awesome dude. He was my guy. He was my boy. We did everything together. Anybody know about recess? <laughs> uh, when you're first, second grade, best time of the day, going to uh, uh, lunch and recess and kindergarten, laying on the mat and just playing with Play-Doh. Man, they don't... Not times like that no more. Somebody got to give me an amen for that one. But Larry was my homie. He was my guy. We, I love Larry. It went to third grade and somebody said, hey, you know Larry's white. I'm like, well, duh. Yeah, he's white. You know, you, you know, he's a white boy. You can't, you can't be hanging around a white boy. And I was like, well, no, I love Larry. It's my guy. He says, wait and watch what happens. He says, he won't be your friend eventually. Larry, I spent the night, I spent the night with Larry's house one Saturday night. And, when, and Sunday morning, I go to go to church with him that morning. And we're getting ready to walk into his church. And the guy says, uh, he can't come in. Literally put his hand on my chest as an eight-year-old. Pushed me back. so he can't come in. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. My granddaddy's been teaching us that everybody who's part of the body of Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we be brothers and sisters in Christ and you kick one of your brothers who are part of the family out of the family? I can't come into the house of God to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It affected me tremendously. It affected me tremendously. I'll never forget that. Me and Larry's relationship separated. It wasn't until two years ago we reconnected on Facebook. Pretty amazing how it affected me spiritually. This is the one that hurt the most. But get this, racism is not a Mississippi problem only. You know, moving here, I married my beautiful bride uh, and have our son, and I moved here in 2009, and I felt like, man, I'm moving to the great West Coast and the Northwest, and like, it's no racism there. I'm moving out of the deep South and with our history and our past, but I moved to to Seattle. We'll go to the next slide. And this is what I experienced. Richards Road, I'm driving down the road. I'm doing 41, 42 miles per hour in 40. And the guy, the officer says, he pulls me over. He, he flags me down, pulls me over. He's, he stopped. And mind you, I have a Honda Accord that has tinted windows and you can barely see in there. But he says, sir, I stopped you because you fit the description of a suspect. I'm like, you, you saw me in my face sitting down like this, driving at 40 miles per hour in a tenant window, you can see my face? I mean, was the suspect have goatee or something? What did you see? He says, well, I got to search your car. So my dad, who was a highway patrolman, told me, he says, whenever somebody searches your car, you have the right, the constitutional right, to videotape them. So I put my, pull out my iPhone and I videotaped them. He said, what you got that for? I said, I just want to make sure you don't put nothing in there that can incriminate me. Because I have too much on the line as a, as a man, as a minister, too many people to reach for you to incriminate me, to put me in jail, to keep me from my calling. And so he searches my car. I'm like, find anything? He says, no, I don't find anything. And he let me go. I went to um, Bellevue Square Mall lastly, and um, I had a similar incident as this young man. We're about to show this video uh, here soon. But I have a, a Bellevue Square Mall. I was followed around the mall. Me and my friend Anthony Upchurch, we were followed around the mall. We went to a store. 
A guy usually, literally stood 10 feet from us the whole time we was in the mall. He followed us to GameStop. We were getting a game for our FCA baseball teams. And uh, he followed us to Auntie Annie's uh, 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 pretzels. And them things are good, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and followed us all the way out until we actually got in our car and followed us to the parking lot. And as soon as we drove off, he walked back into the mall. This is a similar experience of, of a, a thing I found on the internet last week of a kid who had a similar experience in, uh, in Alabama. You can roll that clip for us, please. Racial profiling in Alabama. Watch this. Now watch this. Look at this. I'm on a whole different aisle. Watch this. That's Alabama for you. And watch this. There we go. You think I'm still a You think I'm still in? This is hilarious. <laughs> hey, you just got off? Don't watch this. Let me go to the other app. One more time. One more time. This is funny. <laughs> I'm out. We can laugh about that, but that happens every day all over the country. And um, it affects the psyche of men and women everywhere. Pastor Mike, thank you guys so much for letting me share. All right, Jonathan, come on up here, brother. Come on up here. Well, first off, I'm so thankful that you were able to come and share with us today. Thank, Thank you, you for so sharing us uh, with us your story and your experiences, even the generationally, the, the way in which um, uh, Jesus has been shown to you and passed on to you generationally. It's, it's really beautiful. Amen. And I just want to say, I am excited to be a part of your family, to Amen. be a brother with you in Christ, Likewise, man. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Hey, I wanted to just talk to you for a minute about what would be, we want to be a part of a solution, not just silently a part of the problem. And so what would be an attitude uh, or a posture that, that, uh, that Christ followers can embrace to, to be a part of, uh, to be solution makers? Gotcha. Uh, attitude or posture, I think, that we as Christ followers should embrace uh, on both sides, black and white and Asian or whatever, is that you really have to live the law of love. Love has to be the foundational uh, key. Um, it's the way you... Um, really honor and glorify God. And, God and, and, and Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, he says, it's okay, to love your, it's okay to love your friends, but when you love your enemies, he says, when you truly know you have 
Holy Spirit love, the love of Christ. And, um, and he also says in that, he says, if you love, you will become sons, prove yourself sons of God. And that word sons in the Greek is the Greek word chios, which actually speaks of maturity, which means you'll be more like Christ uh, in your love. And so uh, definitely think if love has to be your motivation, has to be your, your, your guide, number two, I would think you got to walk in unity. Um, Mark chapter three says um, that a house divided cannot stand. Uh, one of the greatest tricks of Satan is that he wants to divide right. the house of God by any means necessary. Racism can be one thing. It could be another thing 20 years from now. Uh, but we have to stand unified uh, with one another because we're all one body in Christ. We're all one body in Christ. And number three, I think we got to stand in truth and really stand for the gospel. The greatest way we can uh, evangelize the world, the Bible says, Jesus says this. He says, they will know you, my, you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. That's right. We got to love each other. And the, the gospel, the, the Christianity is not a black thing, white thing, Asian thing, Hispanic thing. It's a Christ thing. And as Christ followers, we are Christ followers first, and we are an ethnicity next. That's right. Yeah. All right. Okay, can we thank Pastor Jonathan for coming? I love you, bro. Thank you so much, bro. All right. What I want to do right now is I just want to take a couple of minutes and I, I want to make sure that, that we go after some practical next steps for, these are things that each of us can embrace in our life and, and, and that we can uh, begin to move the ball forward a little bit. Uh, the other thing I want to do, and I talked to Jonathan earlier about this, it's I, I want to make sure that there's not this thought that, uh, oh, they bring in a guest speaker and it's sort of the guest speaker's opinions that are being aired and that's not really who we are as a church. Uh, couldn't be farther from the truth. We, we want to make sure that we embrace the whole gospel. And, and we want to make sure that, that uh, we, we are, as Jonathan prayed earlier, that we're seeing this issue of racism and racial tension in America from a, a top-down perspective, from God's perspective. And we want to be a part of the solution. So if you want to grab your notes out of your handout, just a couple of things. And, and, and I want to I tell you that it really does fall in line with this Tell Me a Story series because we've talked about what is the big story that God is writing. And, and we've talked about this, that the, the big story that God is writing is nothing less than the reconciliation of the entire universe to himself, right? It's the reconciliation of all things. It's the invitation to all people that, that God is writing this incredible story with Jesus as the protagonist, and we get an opportunity to attach our little story to it. And you've probably heard it said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to make sure that as we attach our story, that we're attaching our story in such a way that we are also bending toward justice. And so I've got some thoughts. I, I put some resources on your outline, and I would encourage you. Most of these are really quick resources that you can access if you have the internet. Uh, the only thing that takes kind of an investment of time is watching the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, which I highly recommend, Atticus Fitch, rocks, uh, just some amazing um, realities there. What is sad is that the things that are mentioned in that movie tend to still be happening in America. And so that's why, Christian, we need to be a part of the conversation. So here are a couple of things. I got most of these thoughts from a gal named Verna Myers. She's a diversity advocate, an incredible mind and voice in this issue. But the first is this. 
if you're filling in the blanks, how do we overcome our biases? And she recommends that you actually walk toward them in over to overcome them. So if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is simply acknowledge my biases. Acknowledge that we each have biases, that we each have a default, maybe way deep down, maybe it's an unconscious kind of a bias, but it's just helpful for us to recognize that we do have them. Verna Myers recognizes she has them. I just would confess to you, I, I do have some biases. My biases are a little strange. I have a bias against mullets as a hairstyle, right? Business in front, party in back, that doesn't say either to me, you know? I have a bias against long nose hair, mostly because I fight it myself. I have a bias against people who dress their cats up in sweaters. It's just odd. I don't, I've, I've got these biases, right? And I, I've got to deal with it. I've got to acknowledge that I have them. And so do you. And unfortunately, in American culture, psychologists have shown through various testing in random sorts of ways that America likes white. That's a bias. We just have to acknowledge it. When people are shown images of white men and black men, they most easily connect positive with white and negative with black. And this is true regardless of the ethnicity of the participants. Friends, that's called a bias. And it has been proven unhelpful for us to pretend that bias doesn't exist in America. We have to acknowledge that we have biases, right? We've, we've sort of had this ideal for many years. No, no, we're, we're post-racial. We're colorblind as a nation. Friends, we're, we're not. It's a false ideal. And while we're pretending not to see one another, what we're really doing is missing out on opportunities to embrace a beautiful new ideal. See, we want to celebrate all people we are all made in the image of God. We are all welcomed into his kingdom. So I want you to look at this verse. This is from Revelation. This is at the end of the story that God is writing. This is coming at the end. This is the, you know, the absolute pinnacle of the whole thing, the, the, the conclusion. And it says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Circle that phrase. Everybody, right? All ethnicities standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. They held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Friends, that's where the story is going. We all want to be a part of that story. And so we celebrate diversity now because the kingdom is a diverse kingdom. We celebrate diversity now because it represents God's creativity and God's plan. And so we wanna be a part of the story that he's writing. Friends, that's the story that he's writing. We wanna get in on it now, okay? So we acknowledge our biases so that we can overcome them. Second fill in, to do this, we move towards diverse experiences and diverse relationships. In other words, we intentionally move, that's why that's the verb there, so that we can develop friendships outside of what is normal for us, outside of the little communities that we've already established by default, which are by and large uh, monolithic in terms of, of ethnicity or diversity. 
And so what we have to do is we have to move towards these diverse experiences, developing friendships, because listen to this, biases are the stories we make up about people before we know them. Biases are the stories we make up about people before we know who they are. And so get to know who they are. Relationships will cause us to go against stereotypes. They'll, they'll allow us to see a holistic person. And I do tell you that establishing friendships across ethnic lines might be a bit uncomfortable at first. But friends, you might need to get a bit uncomfortable so that you can get comfortable later. Right? And so we, we move and we develop these friendships, these relationships, because out of relationships come empathy and compassion. And Pastor Jonathan mentioned earlier, the law that we're called to is the law of Christ. It's the law of love. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. How is that possible if we're not even willing to spend time across ethnic lines? If we're not even willing to spend time developing friendships? So you have to start to go after this, and then you'll realize that, you know what, that other person, they are a part of you, and you are a part of them, and suddenly you'll stop being adversaries and begin to be allies and even advocates for one another. And the last fill-in here is when we see something, we have to have the courage to say something, even to the ones we love. When you see something that's out of line, you have to have the courage to say something, so for example, ethnic jokes, off limits. Racist jokes, just off limits. And when in the workplace when they come up, or even with, with people that you love, maybe family members, that, you know, and that's just a part of the joking, that's a part of the conversation, you just say, hey, guys, you know what, that, that just makes me uncomfortable. You know what, those are off limits in my family. You, you have to have the courage to say, you know what, Grandma, we don't call people that anymore. You know what, Uncle Joe, um, it's not true that he deserved that. Nobody deserves that. And we have to educate our children, right? We have to look at this from a next generation kind of a thing. We have to tell our ch children that, yes, this is an amazing country with incredible ideals, but we belong to a faith with even greater ideals. And we have come so far, but friends, we have so much further to go. We want to embrace all of our sons and all of our daughters. We need to see both the color and the character of our young men and women, that they are all essential in making a society and in making up the kingdom of God that allows people to be seen for all of who they are. And I want to tell you this because for those of you who know me, you know my family, you realize my family has skin in the game on this issue, that, that I've got two sons and I have the same dreams and the same hopes and the same aspirations for both of them. And I want to be a part of building a society which provides the same amount of education and the same opportunity and the same gracious benefit of the doubt, allowing both of them to struggle and at times fail together, but not having one receive harsh penalty and the other receive grace. They both are involved in this same kind of of embrace, right? We want to embrace all of our sons. We want to embrace all of our daughters. We want to create the kind of society where that's available to all. And so, yeah, I, I've, I've got skin in the game. I'm not the only 
multiracial family in, in Overlake. We got so many families who have already gone this route. By the way, just let me tell you, I didn't challenge the first service to this, but I'll challenge you. These steps that I'm giving you today, they are easy steps. You want a hard step? Here's a, I could, I'll tell you, in, in one generation, we could, we could virtually do away with racial tension. You know how? If all of the Christian families in America decided to adopt across racial lines, one generation, just wipe it out, you would suddenly begin to see every single person as son or daughter, brother or sister. The ideals of Martin Luther King Jr., they, they would become reality. Right? When we open our hearts to one another, this is just what happens. And I've been spending some time with one of our partners. Several years ago, Overlake planted a church down in Rainier Valley, New Light Christian Church. Pastor Rick Danner was sent down there to lead that congregation. And recently, I've been reestablishing our, our relationship with them. And so I spent some time with Pastor Rick. I asked him, could you just give me your, your wisdom? Because this last fall, it, it was a hard fall. And there was a lot of racial tension that just came boiling to the surface. And, and so I just asked him, I said, Pastor Rick, give me some of your wisdom and insight and, and tell me how you led your congregation through that. And then I just took notes for a couple of hours. And so I'm going to share with you some of his words, and this is where we'll close. They're, they're powerful. He said, Pastor Mike, for an African-American man, you feel a bit like an enemy in your own country, profiled from birth to death. He said, the reason why Ferguson was so distressing is that they left a dead boy on the ground for five hours. We already felt they hated us. Now the whole world knows they hate us. And then everybody saw the chokehold that killed a man in New York City. And everyone saw the 12-year-old boy in Cleveland with a toy gun get shot in an instant. And this is just more evidence. And he said, Pastor Mike, listen, the conversation has never been, are you pro-cop or are you anti-police? He says, I've got some amazing friends of mine. We've got great police officers as brothers and sisters here in our church. All of the conversations have been rather about how do we embrace justice, equality, and opportunity for all young Americans. And so I said, well, Pastor Rick, how did you lead your con congregation through that season? And he said, there's only one way. Pastor Mike, it's in Christ where the unity lies. He said, in Christ, I can do what I cannot do without him. He said, Jesus superimposes his values and his kingdom over our culture. And this is the bottom line. I acknowledge that there is a disparity that exists, but I rise above it by being a Christian, a Christ follower, he says. Not a black Christian and not a white Christian, but a Christ follower first who happens to have an assigned ethnicity. And friends, as a Christ follower, what you and I can do is we can use our assigned ethnicities to bring equality and opportunity to all of the ethnicities in this great nation of ours so that we can be a part of fulfilling the ultimate story that God is writing where there is in every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity standing before the throne of God saying salvation belongs to our God. And so I want you with fresh eyes today 
to look at this final passage that we're going to talk about. Fresh eyes as we read this thing together, and I want you to understand what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is, is calling us up to. What he's, what he's just, he's urging us to get our minds up so that we can see one another truly as God sees us, all made in his image, all invited to the throne. And this is what he says. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. You see his kingdom, it's over this culture. Whatever clothes you've been given, whatever ethnicity, whatever prejudice, biases, Christ comes and we put on Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You might want to circle that last phrase. You might want to memorize that last phrase. That last phrase, you might want to toy with having it on your lips again and again and again this week. For we are one in Christ Jesus. In fact, would you just whisper that right now? For we are one in Christ Jesus. We're one. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, in this conversation, we need your help. Because these realities are, they are deep in our history, as we've been reminded today. They are deep in the sense that these our biases and prejudices, these, these are realities that they've been handed down generationally. But as one of my brothers reminded me at the end of the last service, we choose to say enough today. That we can, each of us, choose in our own family history, we can choose to say, but it stops here with me. That we no longer want to be silent. We no longer be, want to be part of perpetuating a problem. But rather, Lord Jesus, we each of you offer ourselves to you now. Show us how we might be able to be a part of bringing solution, bringing your grace, bringing your love into the culture that we live in today. Jesus, we ask that you would help us be, be honest with ourselves, that we might acknowledge our biases that we might recognize the places where we see other people as stereotypes and not as individuals made in your image. We pray that you would show us ways in which, in fact, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open doors so that we might have the opportunity to experience friendship across sort of uh, the, the diverse boundaries that we have created for our own lives. And we do ask, Lord Jesus, that we would have the courage when we see something to say something, that we could stand in the gap on behalf of our brothers and sisters who don't have the same equality, justice, or opportunity that we have. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, knowing that you're here. Holy Spirit, that you're present to guide us and to lead us forward from this place. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.